And my paper is going to take a somewhat broader scope in terms of thinking comparatively about the equestrian theme in French and American portraiture. And I also want to thank, of course, Todd and the organizers here. And uh, because of the breadth of this topic, I've drawn on the research of many scholars uh, that are here in the audience today. <coughs> inception, the equestrian portrait has been associated with sovereignty, political power, and military prowess. Beginning with the Greeks, the horse and rider took on heroic dimensions, notably with Alexander the Great and his legendary steed, Bucephalus. By the end of the Republic, the equestrian statue was established as an aristocratic prerogative. Under the empire, the equestrian monument was canonized as a symbol of imperial power, restricted to the emperor alone. The Marcus Aurelius, long believed to depict the Christian emperor Constantine I, became the most influential model for equestrian portraits. Restored and transferred to the Campidoglio in 1538, it was widely emulated and copied from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In his study of equestrian portraits, Walter Lipke emphasizes the close relationships in form and meaning with courtly culture and the art of riding. But he does not discuss equestrian portraits in the post-revolutionary era, when political power and symbolic modes of representation were fiercely contested and radically reformulated. This paper argues that the equestrian portrait with its deeply entrenched associations with absolute power and public display was repurposed in the wake of the American and French revolutions, which necessitated new pictorial strategies for representing secular power and individual heroism. Focusing on paintings from the 1780s to early 1800s, it traces the equestrian themes devolution into a fluid, multivalent mode of representation democratizing and reframing horse and rider to reflect Republican ideals in a modern military and political context. And you will hear more about these examples, the David that you've seen, and the Trumbull on the right. Despite the widespread destruction of royalist imagery during the French Revolution, the equestrian portrait did not disappear. Its devolution and recasting are more complex and culturally significant than generally realized, and warrant further examination. The rapidly shifting political terrain, rise of nationalism, and cross-fertilization of artistic influences contributed to the repurposing of the equestrian portrait on both sides of the Atlantic. Official portraits of the two most charismatic military leaders, George Washington and Napoleon Bonaparte, provide a useful lens for reconsidering the evolving forms and contested meanings of post-revolutionary equestrian portraiture. Although their agendas, personalities, and physiques differ dramatically, both achieved preeminence through their military exploits before becoming political leaders. The equestrian theme and variations. 
While the equestrian portrait, strictly speaking, depicts an identifiable individual on horseback, the dismounted equestrian exemplified that the Quirinal Diascore also originated in antiquity. Restored in, 18, in 1589, the horse tamers, which inspired Coustou's mountain horses, proved too big for Napoleon to transport back to Paris. Van Dyck's Charles I at the Hunt in the Louvre initiated a less formal, more intimate formula for representing horse and dismounted rider, which became commonplace in 18th century British portraiture. As Julius Held has noted, Van Dyck's new formula subtly blends the princely English hunt picture with state portraiture and the body politic, embodied in the elegantly wielded cane, connoting absolute power as well as courtly grace. The equestrian theme's dense nexus of associations with divine and secular power, state portraiture, and the chivalric tradition and horsemanship are synthesized in the dazzling goldenness rissi, which represents King Charles VI kneeling devoutly before the Virgin. In the lower register, a groom holds the king's whinnying steed, whose snowy coat echoes the drapery of the Virgin and angels above. Last but not least, the horse has long been a symbol of unbridled passion, associated with liberty and the unconscious that may require rational restraint. Alciati's emblemata 1531 popularized the image of the rider mastering his horse as a symbol of rulership. The wild, untamable spirit of the horse mythologized in the hybrid centaur, where horse and rider literally merge, was later thematized by the Romantics. From the Renaissance on, equestrian portraiture has been characterized by continuity and uniformity, notably in the treatment of the horse, most often depicted trotting, one leg raised, as in the Marcus Aurelius or the John Bologna Ferdinando Medici that you see here, or rearing, four legs raised, recalling the Levade, a dressage pose, and this is Velasquez's uh, Prince Balthazar Carlos on the other screen. The rider, often wielding a baton, symbolizing military leadership, conveys an image of command and effortless control, underscoring the close relationship between horsemanship and rulership, promulgated in equestrian manuals like Antoine de Pluvinel's influential Manage Royal, 1623, or the Duke of Newcastle's Métoria Mention Nouvelle de Tracer les Chevaux, 1658 which equated equestrian skill with good governance. Although the equestrian portrait retained its imperial and aristocratic pedigree and formality, it was also used for condottieri monuments like Donatello's Gattamilata on the screen and wall tombs. Horst Janssen has proposed that while Renaissance equestrian portraits typically emphasize the prowess of the individual hero or virtue, from the mid-16th century on, they more consciously imitated Roman imperial practices, functioning as public assertions of dynastic authority, associated with the rise of absolute rule, notably the Bourbon dynasty. And this is the Louis XV uh, from uh, Bordeaux. In the 18th century, individual heroism again came to the fore. The horse's evolving cultural status 
from a preoccupation with bloodlines and breeding to life-size individual portraits like this one by Van Hamilton to changing attitudes towards animals and sensibilité impacted equestrian portraits, especially the anthropomorphic treatment of the horse. <coughs> from Leonardo da Vinci to Durer to Stubbs, and this is of course Stubbs' Anatomy of the Horse, artists applied anatomical and scientific knowledge and mathematical ratios to the horse, creating idealized equine forms that mirrored ideal human proportions. Repurposing the equestrian portrait. In depictions of Napoleon and Washington, both a cheval and avec cheval, the equestrian portrait was repurposed and modernized in response to the rapidly evolving political situation in post-revolutionary France and the United States. As we shall see, reframing and democratizing the equestrian genre with its absolutist courtly pedigree proved challenging, especially in the United States. As a renowned horseman and military hero, Washington was an ideal equestrian subject. I suspect the paucity of equestrian portraits created during his lifetime is due to the strong associations with royal power and the problematic relationship with history painting and portraiture. The earliest equestrian image of Washington is fictitious. This is after Campbell, 1775, an anonymous mezzotint that Washington never posed for. Although the Continental Congress voted to honor Washington by erecting a bronze equestrian statue in Roman dress, crowned with a laurel wreath and holding a truncheon in 1783, equestrian portraits did not proliferate until after his death in the efflorescence of posthumous portraits and monuments. By contrast, Bonaparte was frequently portrayed on horseback. Uh, we've already seen Jacques-Louis David's heroic image of Bonaparte crossing the Alps, which remains exceptional. As his military fortunes declined and the death toll mounted, the citizen emperor was subsumed into the army and increasingly associated with suffering and compassion. Under the July monarchy, David's airbrushed epic image gave way to more anecdotal revisionist depictions like Delaroche's Bonaparte Crossing the Alps, 1848 in the Louvre, in which Bonaparte sits slouched uncomfortably atop his mule, looking world-weary and dyspeptic. Bonaparte's antithetical public persona began to coalesce under the consulate. Ruthlessly ambitious and controlling, he cultivated his image as a dashing Republican hero in military uniform, underscoring his simplicity, directness, and modernity. But the Republican ethos increasingly clashed with his assumption of dictatorial powers and court ceremonial, as David O'Brien has suggested, and the politics of display. In Bonaparte Crossing the Alps, 1800-1801, David sought to legitimate and consecrate the first consul by portraying him as a classical military hero and aligning him with Hannibal and Charlemagne. Bonaparte, swordless, gestures toward the summit and victory, effortlessly mastering his rearing horse. Commissioned by Charles IV of Spain, David's inspired fiction straddles the line between portraiture and history painting by referencing the Italian campaign. Rather than charismatically leading, 
Bonaparte actually crossed the Alps incognito after the rest of the army. Although David's ambitious reworking of the equestrian genre was admired and a replica was commissioned for Saint-Cloud, it had few imitators. By contrast, Antoine Jean Gros, Bonaparte distributing the Sword of Honor after the Battle of Marengo, 1803, commissioned by the First Consul, is more down-to-earth and less sublime. It offers a more naturalistic, politically savvy image of Bonaparte, wearing his showy consular uniform and beacorn, underscoring his dual identity by interweaving his political and military power as the victor of Marengo. Gros, Napoleon's most effective propagandist, thematizes the introduction of decorations and awards to instill personal loyalty and the emerging military ideology, underscored, underscored here by the inclusion of the rough and ready soldiers brandishing banners at the far right. Gros' transitional canvas anticipates the growing focus on Napoleon's charismatic person, uplifting deeds and humanity investing him with a sort of virtu. Although modeled on the Marcus Aurelius, the horse is shown in profile, whereas Bonaparte turns to look back at the soldiers. Commandingly mounted on his white Arab charger, Marengo, and this is Groves' wonderful study of the horse that I just had to bring in, uh, he fills the canvas, Napoleon does, dominating the battlefield in endless rows of Lilliputian troops below, coolly exhibiting the traditional attitudes of rulership and military leadership. Joseph Chabour's monumental Napoleon on the field of Bagram, 1810, commemorating one of the last major victories, reprises the heroic model. Dressed in the uniform of the light horse, accessorized with medals, the emperor effortlessly masters his nervous white charger with one hand, extending his right arm in a rhetorical gesture that channels David. The sublime setting, the horse's windswept tail and forelock, and tiny cavalry troops at far right underscore Napoleon's charismatic leadership, visually equating his solitary elevated position and heroic stature with the cavalry charge that secured the French victory. By contrast, Horace Vernet's depiction of the Battle of Vaughan, 1836, shows Napoleon mounted on a white horse surveying the battlefield through field glasses. Rather than reifying his individual heroism, he is flanked by the dashing cavalry officers who actually led the charge and who fill almost half the canvas, transforming him from an actor into a spectator in a genre-like battle narrative. Incidentally, horses are not the only animals Napoleon was pictured riding. During the Egyptian campaign, he rode a dromedary, informed a dromedary regiment to better counter the native insurgents. British satirists lampooned the equestrian genre in anti-Napoleonic caricatures like the two uh, you see here. Uh, and there's another one I don't have an image of that shows the emperor in a preposterous plumed beacorn riding mounted backwards on a mule. But we have uh, John Crookshanks, John Bull showing the Corsican monkey, and then of course we have the Corsican beggar riding to the devil. And there are many more of these. In the wake of the revolution, American painters faced the challenge of depicting General Washington in a democratic yet heroic way. Although portraits proliferated from the mid-1770s on, he was generally shown on foot. 
Charles Wilson Peale's full length, commemorating the victories at Princeton and Trenton, 1779, provided a template. Washington, as commander-in-chief, stands at ease, legs crossed, left hand nonchalantly posed on a cannon, with a horse and equerry behind. Peale's impressive but democratically coded portrait proved popular, and numerous replicas were made and sent abroad. John Trumbull's Washington at Fairplanks Point, circa 1790, is the first official portrait of Washington featuring a horse. Uh, Trumbull's earlier uh, small hole length, 1780, painted from memory in London, depicts Washington on foot with his mounted servant behind uh, William Lee. In Washington at Fairplanks, the general stands at ease, leaning casually against his horse, right arm draped over the saddle, left hand at his hip, holding his hat. Although Trumbull made sketches and insisted Washington and his horse were painted from life, the composition closely resembles Gainsborough's portrait of the Prince of Wales, and this is the print after it, 1782, and the horse's pose recalls Charles I at the hunt. Washington's buff-colored uniform matches the shade of the horse's coat, underscoring the intimate relationship between horse and rider, as does the subtle asymmetry of their poses. Monumental but non-hierarchical, Washington and his horse are dramatically silhouetted, dominating the miniature French and American armies below. Trumbull's ambitious Washington before the Battle of Trenton, 1792, and this is the version at Yale, commissioned by the, the city of Charleston, portrays the general standing in front of a rearing horse, restrained by a soldier, recalling the Dioscuri, or the Parthenon horsemen. Seeking to evoke Washington's sublime military character before the Battle of Trenton, Trumbull adopted a grand rhetorical pose, recalling the Apollo Belvedere, while striving for historical accuracy in details like the spyglass he holds. Even though Washington's equestrian prowess on an icy slope was credited with inspiring the demoralized troops, he is not portrayed on horseback. The horse, whose head is aligned with Washington's, embodies the general's turbulent emotions at that decisive moment. The Charleston City Fathers disliked the historical trappings, preferring a more matter-of-fact portrait. So, Trumbull painted a variant, which you see on the right, in which the horse is flipped and seen from the rear. And Washington leans on his walking stick or sword, and I have to say, I haven't seen really good images of this, so I'm not 100% sure which, stiffly echoing Charles I at the hunt. Charleston's rejection of the original version speaks to the tensions surrounding the equestrian genre and historical portraiture more generally. In 1806, Gilbert Stuart, creator of the iconic image of Washington as president, uh, that we'll hear more about, was commissioned to paint a monumental equestrian portrait of Washington at Dorchester Heights for the city of Boston. Faced with the challenge of posthumously depicting Washington as a revolutionary hero, he reused the head from the Athenaeum portrait, beefed up with a powerful athletic body. Washington at Fairplanck, which Stuart must have known, offered a prototype. However, Washington's resolute stance is closer to Washington at Trenton, though the gestures and horses' position are reversed and modified. 
standing stiffly, head turned to his right, his right arm at his side, his extended left arm grasped the horse's reins. In his memoir, Paul Spinnin cattily observed that the general appeared 20 years older than he should have. The body was too big for the head, and the horse looked unnatural. Spinnin, who toured the United States 1811-13, also noted the ubiquity of portraits of Washington decorating every home, like religious depictions of saints. Following his death, posthumous equestrian portraits of Washington began to appear. William Clark's allegorical depiction of George Washington, 1800, on the screen is one of the earliest examples. As citizen emperor, Napoleon was often pictured amidst the army, um, inspiring the troops, as we'll see in a moment in Claude Gautreau's Napoleon haranguing the army before Augsburg, or, as you see here, visiting the battlefield after, underscoring his compassion. And this is the most famous example of Napoleon at Elo, 1808. David O'Brien has analyzed the tactic of displacement, neutralizing the violence and suffering of war by placing it outside the picture frame, focusing instead on Napoleon's charismatic person, humanity, and compassion. Gautreau, a student of David, invented a stirring martial pageant highlighting the devotion Napoleon inspired. Astride his white charger, Napoleon references Marcus Aurelius, gesturing forcefully and exhorting the troops. The canvas thematizes discipline, loyalty, and martial fervor at a time when desertion was on the rise and conscription was increasingly resisted. Washington and Napoleon retrouvé. The French and American strands of this paper come together in Rembrandt Peel, who painted countless effigies of Washington and mounted and monumental equestrian portraits of both Napoleon and Washington. In 1795, Washington sat to Gilbert Stuart, Charles Wilson Peel, and Peel's precocious 17-year-old son, resulting in contrasting images of the first president. Focusing on physiognomic details, Rembrandt Peel painted a naturalistic likeness which he reworked for decades, culminating in the composite porthole portrait 1824, which you see on the screen, purchased for the Senate chamber in 1832 after a lengthy campaign. In letters and a published pamphlet, Peel insisted his portrait of Washington was the most authentic, perfect likeness of the nation's founding father, buttressing his claim with affidavits from individuals who had known him, including uh, Peel's father, who termed it the most perfect likeness of him that I have ever seen. Rembrandt Peel first visited Paris in 1808 and returned in 1809-10. Besides painting portraits, he studied the old masters of the Louvre and visited the gallery of French painters at Versailles and artists' studios, notably those of David and Girard, and this is David's studio. David's dazzling synthesis of veristic detail and elevated idealism was a transformative influence that encouraged Peel to create large-scale history paintings. After his return, Peel painted a small equestrian portrait of Washington that's not dated, now in a private collection, that portrays him riding a white horse in a forest. In Paris, Peel became intrigued by Napoleon and wanted to paint his portrait. Although unable to obtain a sitting, 
He sketched the emperor at various public ceremonies and painted a composite bust-length portrait of circa 1810 on the screen, a sort of doppelganger to his composite portrait of Washington. That portrait and the other images of the emperor he had seen were subsumed into a monumental 13 by 11 foot composite historical portrait of Bonaparte on horseback that has disappeared. In 1811, both portraits of Napoleon were exhibited at the Society of Artists in Philadelphia to mixed reviews. Peel's advertisements emphasized his frequent opportunities to see Napoleon on his recent visit to Paris. Echoing his claims about his portrait of Washington, he insisted it was a better likeness than any he had seen. Reviewers like Benjamin Latrobe and John Neal were struck by how unlike Peel's bustling portrait was to any known images of Napoleon, noting its striking character and earnest, thoughtful air. However, his Bonaparte on horseback was dogged by rumors of plagiarism and Napoleon's deteriorating image as an expansionist dictator rather than a Republican military hero. The Russian consul Spinin cuttingly observed, there's nothing in this portrait that's above censure. The rumors that Peel had copied his picture from David's Bonaparte Crossing the Alps proved more damaging than Spinin's complaints about faulty drawing. In the summer of 1823, Peel began painting a monumental equestrian portrait depicting Washington before Yorktown. <coughs> Mounted on a spirited white horse, he's flanked by his officers, Henry Knox, Benjamin Lincoln, the Comte de Rochambeau, and the Marquis de Lafayette. With this ambitious, multi-figure composition, Peel was vying for a place in the grand tradition of equestrian portraiture. Centrally placed and dramatically illuminated, Washington doffs his hat in a gesture of salute as his prancing horse pivots. Washington's face is based on the composite standard portrait we've seen in the portable portrait. In a remarkable variant, horse and rider are cropped at half length, replacing the bustling depiction in senatorial robes. Washington's hat held in his outstretched hand in the painting appears literally in the horse's mouth. As allegorical, an allegor as allegorical and equestrian depictions proliferated in the 19th century, the Patria Pater's image as world compass and national historical monument was consolidated and widely disseminated. In an ironic retour on arriere, the porthole portrait itself is a blown up version of a traditional print format parading as a state portrait. Peel undertook his monumental equestrian portrait of Washington in the hopes that Congress would purchase it. He may have gotten wind of Silly's commission from North Carolina to paint the passage of Delaware on the screen, which features an equestrian portrait of Washington. The growing interest in equestrian depictions was also propelled by the rise of another famous general and future president, Andrew Jackson, the hero of New Orleans. Jackson's triumphal equestrian tour and the political propaganda seeking to link Washington and Jackson was a further incentive for Peel's project. In the event, Peel's monumental equestrian port canvas was not purchased and remained in his studio. By mid-century, the equestrian genre had devolved from grand manor to middle-brow portraiture and even to folk art, as evidenced in Reuben Law Reed's Washington and Lafayette at the Battle of Yorktown in which Lafayette appears to be riding literally behind Washington, uncannily merging and conflating the two generals and their horses, 
and an enduring image of military command. Thank you.